If we're honest, we love a well-fought, drawn-out rivalry. And what makes for a good one? You think of a bunch of examples. Maybe they're related to our own lives. You know, sadly, the rivalry of Mid Park and Berea High Schools are over. Um, no more grindstone. In my family, there's a rivalry between my mom and her siblings over who cooks the best breaded chicken and who makes the best Italian wedding soup. It's my mom. Um, on the street where I grew up, there's kind of an unspoken rivalry of who has the most pristine front lawn. Now, you think of examples of rivalries. Many will think of sports, naturally. Uh, Ali versus Frazier, Red Sox versus Yankees, Duke versus North Carolina, Ohio State versus that team up north, and currently the Warriors versus the Cavs. We're talking about how badly they were robbed the first game. I have a hard time getting over that. The best dictionary definition of, of rivalry I found is pretty short. It's a serious and often continuing competition. And I think that's right. It, usually the best ones, the best rivalries are ongoing. And they're serious because the opponents are often evenly matched. And rivalries can get even more serious when opponents share some kind of kindred, right? Where, where they're related maybe in some way, they share a history, or they're close in location. So good rivalries are when the competition between two opponents is a constant vying back and forth for who is better. And there's so much of that, and it creates these high-intensity situations where tempers can easily boil over. Good rivalries. For all the good sports ones, there are some intense political rivalries. And one of my favorites is John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. I don't know how much you're familiar with it, but their rivalry was so intense and heated, in part because they're both brilliant minds, and they have a shared history. They, both of these guys were leaders in the birth of America. But after America was born, they diverged in where America should go next. And so they campaigned against each other, even though they were once friends. And we think political attack ads are, are something new. They're not. In fact, they were like even more insulting back then. So about John Adams, one of Jefferson's supporters said, he has a character which neither has the firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. Supporters of Adams said that under Jefferson, America would be a nation where murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will be openly taught and practiced. It's pretty harsh, right? It's an intense rivalry. But both Adams and Jefferson served as president. And, you know, interestingly enough, you know the story just as a sidebar. They reconciled. They became friends again. They would write letters to each other the last season of their lives. And they died on the same exact day, July 4th. 1826. Really cool story. So what we're talking about today is God's promises to Abraham, but they didn't come in Abraham's lifetime. So how would they continue to Abraham's descendants? 
That's what Genesis covers as the story continues. The story of those descendants of Abraham, it involves a rivalry. A rivalry between his two grandsons, Jacob and Esau. And this rivalry, it's, it's meant for more than us sitting back, taking it all in while eating some popcorn, just watching them duel it out. No, it's, it's like the rest of the Old Testament. You know, the, the Apostle Paul wrote that it's written for our instruction. So even here, this rivalry is written for our instruction. And as we read closely these chapters, chapters 25 to 27 in Genesis, we see that this rivalry revolves around family strife and that it's from really having little regard for God's will, for God's way of doing things. And instead, it stems from being selfish. Good thing we've gotten over that. Doesn't, that's not a problem anymore. Well, as the case has always been in Genesis so far, this rivalry is another display of God's wisdom, of God's care, of God's faithfulness when we are not faithful. His faithfulness to work through people and events to keep his promises despite people's sin against him, despite people's scheming on their own. So if there's a main point, if there's a main thread that runs through Genesis 25 to 27, it's simply this. We must acknowledge that God's ways are better than our ways. God's ways are better than our ways. Have you ever tried to put shoes on a toddler? It's not easy. Toddlers don't want to help out the situation. They're squirmy, they're fussy, and sometimes you wish you could just sit down a toddler, look him directly in the eye, and speak to him rationally. Say, look, these shoes will protect your feet. They will help you. And it will be a lot easier for you if you just stop what you're doing, you stop doing your own thing, and let me put these shoes on your feet. We are like those toddlers. Time and again, we squirm and we fuss and convince ourselves that our way and that our own understanding, they're fine. And God's way, well, it's not what's best for us. It's not really what's wise. It's not really what will get us ahead. It's not that good for us. These chapters in Genesis remind us that we have to humble ourselves and trust God's ways. Trust God because he's good, because he is wise, because he's almighty. He controls all things. God's ways are better than our ways. So we're going to see that throughout all these chapters. And before we kind of dive in, we want to set the scene, like set up the stage. What's the context of what we're reading? So we'll set up the context and we'll trace this theme in four different sections. If you open up your bulletin, you'll see those four sections printed in the bulletin there. They all start with P. Maybe it's kind of easier to remember. So prophecy of sons, presence of sin, promise remains, and prophecy fulfilled. That theme of God's ways are better than our ways throughout all those things. But first, 
some context. Big picture, Genesis. That's what we want to keep in mind as we are going through Genesis. What does the whole thing look like? That's going to make it easier for us to understand the little parts. So if you haven't had a, uh, opened a Bible yet, you can open to Genesis 25. You'll find that if you're using the Pew Bible on page 19. And if you're new here, this is kind of what we do every week. Uh, we open up the Bible to some passage. Sometimes we examine a paragraph, sometimes a couple of chapters. And we want to expose what it says. Explaining what it says, and then after that, applying it to our lives. So in applying it in a way that's faithful to the text, like that's warranted by it. So if it's really going to help you if you have a Bible open so that you can follow along, so that you can check on what I'm saying, uh, and hopefully you can follow along with the flow of the passage. So kind of big picture around Genesis 25. The whole book of Genesis, you can break it down into two sections. Chapters 1 to 11 and chapters 12 to 50. Chapters 1 to 11 set the stage for the main drama of chapters 12 to 50. And that main drama deals with Abraham and his descendants. But in all that time, in all of Genesis, we see different things coming up again and again. We see God's power in creation. We see man's or people's rebellion in rejecting God. And we see God's judgment of sin. And we see God's grace in restoring people to himself. So that story of restoring people, of redeeming people, of rescuing people, that's a plan that started all the way back in chapter 3, verse 15. After Adam and Eve, the first people, after they sinned against God, after that serpent led them to sin against God, God promises them, I'm going to send a descendant of the woman, a descendant of you, to crush that serpent. So here we have that plan of grace. So the rest of Genesis, and really the rest of the Bible, is about that plan to crush that serpent, to bring people back to the peace of Eden. But the plan keeps failing. Adam fails. Then God raises up another kind of Adam, Noah. Noah and his family fails. Then God raises up someone like Abram, who he later calls Abraham. And he tells Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In you, in, in one of Abraham's offspring. So that's kind of the story from 12 to 50. That's what we pick up in the middle of today. So at the beginning of chapter 25, curtain closes on Abraham and the stage transitions to focus on those who come after him and that closing and transitioning is what goes on in, in verses 1 to 18 if you notice there sometimes those uh, those headings although they're not a part of the original Bible they're 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 helpful often so Abraham's death and his descendants you'll see there if you're looking at the ESV so that's what verses 1 to 18 deal with they tell of Abraham's other sons from other women, which, by the way, is against the pattern God sets when he creates people. Anyway, these verses also reestablish Abraham's son, Isaac, as his sole heir. 
And these verses also show Isaac and Ishmael reunited at their father's death. So Abraham, it says, he dies full of years in verse 8. And he's gathered to his people. He goes to a place, presumably heaven, where his ancestors who have already died are there. And the rest of this section highlights Ishmael, who's technically Abraham's firstborn son, but he's not the son God promised him. He's not the son of his wife, Sarah. But even though Ishmael isn't the main character, he's not dismissed. It's not like he doesn't have a future. It's not like God went away from him. No, you look all the way back in chapter 16, God makes promises to Ishmael to give him descendants, to give him a future. And the Lord fulfills those promises here in chapter 25. So that's kind of the context, big picture, small picture, where we're going. Curtain closing on Abraham, brief details of Ishmael, make way for the focus of the narrative to turn to Isaac. Isaac, Abraham's son. And you notice that refrain you'll see throughout all of Genesis. Verse 19 of chapter 25. These are the generations of. This time, these are the generations of Isaac. Stage set. First, we'll dive into the first section, okay? Prophecy of sons. Goes from verse 19 of chapter 25 to verse 26. I want us to notice a couple of things here. Verse 21 reveals a familiar problem to the book of Genesis and really to the whole Bible. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is barren. She can't have children. But what does Isaac do in the light of this problem? What does it say? He prays. So we don't dismiss the pain of trials. The pain of, of not having things that, that we desire, even when those things are, are good things. But trials, not having what we desire, that's an opportunity for us to humble ourselves, to say, you know, God, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why you are allowing the things you have allowed. But we trust you. Trials give us that opportunity to trust that God's ways are better than our ways, even if we can't see it right now in that moment. So Rebecca's barrenness, the fact that she couldn't have children, that gives Isaac an opportunity to do just that, to express his trust in the Lord. And really, he shows the importance and the power of prayer the importance and the power of prayer. I mean, think about what Isaac could have done in this situation instead of praying. He could have done what his dad did. Remember back, back in chapter 16? Been a while since God promised Abraham that he's going to have a son, and Abraham's not getting any younger. So you know what Abraham does? He takes a concubine. He takes another woman and says, all right, God, you're taking a while, so I'm just going to have a son of my own. Isaac could have done the same thing. He could have said, God, you know what? This is taking too long. Your ways are too slow. The clock is ticking. So I'm just going to do it myself. You forced me to do it this way. 
could have done that. Or, instead of praying, Isaac could have just sulked and complained and wallowed in self-pity. You know, we just got done talking about his brother, Ishmael. Ishmael's not the son of promise. Isaac's supposed to be. But here's Ishmael with 12 kids. Isaac doesn't have any. He could have looked at God and said, God, what gives? I'm supposed to be the son of promise. And my brother has 12 kids and I don't have any? No. Isaac could have done these things. But instead, he prays for his wife. Just kind of a sidebar. Husbands, wives, do you pray for your spouse every day? Every day. If you don't, why not? Sidebar done. What's incredible is Isaac's perseverance in prayer. Do you see how old he is when he started to pray? If you look at verse 20, he's 40 years old. But when does he actually get kids? Look at verse 26. He gets kids when he's 60 years old. So you mean to tell me that he prayed for this for 20 years? I have never prayed for something for 20 years. I've never done it. Maybe some of you have here. But do you see how that would strengthen your faith? Praying for something for 20 years. Do you see how deep of an expression of trust that is to God? To continue to pray to him. So I'm not going to pretend that I can relate to every single problem and trial that you're going through. I think each of us can relate to one another in some way, but we don't know exactly what it's like to walk in one another's shoes. Each of us faces unique trials, and none of us can completely empathize with one another. But you know who can? You know who knows exactly what you're going through? That's right, Jesus. He is the high priest who can sympathize with our every weakness because he willingly took our weaknesses on himself. What's more, not that just God can sympathize with our weaknesses, but if you are in Christ, if you are in Jesus, the Bible says there's no more condemnation for you. There's no more punishment. That means, you know that means that everything happening in your life, even though it may be hard to see, everything happening in your life, God is working it out for your good and for his glory. You may not be able to see that for 20 years. Friend, you may not be able to see that until you see God face to face. But Christ's work for us, God's goodness and God's control, God's plan, should inspire us to pray, to take refuge in God and not take refuge in sin. So we continue to lay at God's feet that his ways are better than our ways. So we see in this section of prophecy of sons the importance of prayer. 
But the other big thing I want you to notice, and we're going to spend more time on this section than we will others, so don't worry, um, is God's purpose of grace in Isaac's sons. So Isaac's sons are, are Jacob and Esau. We see God's purpose of grace in them. So God prophesies about how Isaac's sons will turn out. Just quick definition, prophecy, basically it's proclaiming truth, and it's often truth related to the future. So God prophesies about Jacob and Esau. And you look at verse 23, that important phrase. God says, the older shall serve the younger. This is God's way. It's higher and better than what Rebekah or Isaac would have chosen on their own. And we will see that proven. But why is this God's way for these sons? I mean, on what basis does God choose the younger over the older? You know, one of the gifts of having all of God's revelation to us, one of the gifts of having this whole book is that we can see how it interprets itself. Scripture interprets Scripture. So the Apostle Paul interprets this very passage, Genesis 25, 23, in Romans 9, what we read earlier. So on what basis does God choose the younger over the older? Well, Paul writes in Romans 9 that God chose Jacob not because of anything about Jacob, but out of his sheer mercy. There's nothing that Jacob did to deserve. It's unconditional. You can look at your bulletin in Romans 9. You should have the verses printed in there, too those little numbers. Look at verses 10 and 11. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. On what basis? Because of him who calls, not because of works. Well, that's unfair, you might say. Well, Paul anticipates that objection. He goes on in Romans 9. He says, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. So there's something to remember about mercy. Right? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Right, if we just like strip everything down in like a, a basic kind of definition. Not getting what you deserve. So if you say that you deserve mercy, that's a contradiction. You can't deserve mercy. If you say you deserve mercy, you're not talking about mercy anymore. So that means our main question should be, why does God choose anyone? question really shouldn't be, why doesn't God choose everyone? It really should be, why does God choose anyone? Well, if God chooses based on anything foreseen in us, any good in us, then you, there'd be some little room for, for boasting. If he chooses based on something in us, we could take some amount of credit for our salvation. 
It would mean that the reason you and I are saved and someone else isn't is because there's some little thing about us that others don't have. Ephesians 2, though, says that we are saved by grace through faith and that even that faith is a gift. Why are we saved in this way? Ephesians 2 says, so that no one may boast. What about free will, you may ask? God choosing Jacob? Well, the truth of God choosing on the basis of his own good wisdom and to the praise of his glorious grace and not choosing based on our own works, that doesn't diminish our responsibility. It doesn't diminish our responsibility to turn from our sin, to place our faith in Christ. But remember, if we are truly dead in our trespasses and sin, as Ephesians 2 also says, if we are truly dead, Dead people can't help themselves. If there is truly no one who seeks after God, then God has to work in us so that we will willingly repent and believe. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him in. That means God's choice is compatible with our responsibility, we uphold both things. What's more is that the blame for unbelief, for not believing, that always lies at the feet of people themselves, not God. And I realized all this, we've taken a couple minutes to talk about this because, you know, it's a big truth. It's complicated. It's a heavy subject. Why God chose Jacob and not Esau. Listen, I don't have all of my questions answered. And I probably won't answer all of yours. So what's more is that as we approach this truth, why God chose Jacob and not Esau, we need to do so with patience, with charity, with gentleness, and most of all, with humility. That's the point Paul gets to in Romans 9. Look at verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? kind of sounds cruel and maybe it sounds like you know what just stop asking questions but at some point it's beyond our understanding at some point we have to acknowledge that God is always just he is perfect and we have to trust him So the truth of God choosing Jacob isn't meant to make us both boastful. In fact, it's meant to do the exact opposite, to give all praise to God, to give us assurance that God will see us from eternity to eternity. Further, it's not meant to give us license to be lazy. It's meant to give us confidence. It's as if God's saying, go out and fish. I guarantee you will catch some. Jesus said himself, The harvest is plentiful. So this is God's way. Prophecy of sons. But people don't submit to God's ways. Like those toddlers, they fuss, they squirm, they take matters into their own hands. That's what we start to see in the next section. The presence of sin. The presence of sin. So you look at chapter 25. 
And you see kind of a brief sketch of who Esau and Jacob are in verse 27. And then we see the presence of sin in their parents in verse 28, Isaac and Rebekah. They play favorites. Isaac loves Esau. Rebekah loves Jacob. So maybe you debate with your siblings who's the favorite of the family. Now, that's some playful jesting, I'm sure, but like sometimes favoritism can bring serious hurt. So just to clarify, just because God prophesied that their sons would turn out in a certain way and didn't give them permission to play favorites with their kids and didn't give them permission to be bad parents, especially for Isaac, I mean, he loved Esau for what Esau gave him. That's selfish. That's sinful. That is not God's way. So the sin of their parents, we really see it, it sets up the stage for what happens next, the sin of their sons. So we see a little bit, a little story. Isaac's man's man, right? You know the, the guy on the brawny paper towels? Uh, that's like, uh, I mean, Esau. That's Esau. Real hairy, comes back from the hunt, sweaty, you know, he's famished, and he finds his brother, Jacob, kind of sheepish, cooking stew, literally called red stuff, and Esau wants some. And Jacob has this thought in his mind, a thought that I wouldn't necessarily have, of how I can negotiate my parents' will with my siblings over a meal. But Jacob thinks of this. He tells Esau that he'll give him some food if he gives him his birthright. Birthrights belong to the oldest son, involve material and spiritual blessing. And in their case, it was the blessing of being in the line that would produce the Messiah, the person through whom God would, would save people. So Esau, he sees this deal in front of him doesn't know the art of the deal. He takes it. It says he ate, he drank, he rose, and he went his way. Like it was nothing. So just like sin is present in Isaac and Rebekah, it's present in Jacob and Esau. So for Jacob, he has the right priorities, right? He values the right things. He values the birthright. But he goes about them in the wrong way. He's devious. He's cunning. He sees what is most valuable is something that he's going to have to wait for. But he's not willing to wait to ensure that he gets it. Not willing to trust God in that way. His faith is twisted. It's immature. Sins in Esau, too. Esau's priorities, on the other hand, totally backwards. Look at verse 34. It says that he despised his birthright. Esau's impulsive. He's thoughtless about the future in the face of a present need. Do you see verse 30 where he says, let me eat some of this red stuff. Literally, it reads, red stuff, this red stuff. Esau's a brute. He wants a simple meal so bad that he can't even produce a coherent sentence. So he falls into the trap that we fall into a lot. He sees the immediate satisfaction of sin 
and doesn't care about how it, how it will affect his future. So think about these sons for a second. Think about Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau had every advantage growing up. If you read the text closely, you see their grandfather, Abraham, granddad Abraham, was around till they were 15. Can you imagine that? Imagine Abraham sitting Jacob and Esau down on his lap at night and, and, and pointing to the stars and saying, you know, kids, God promised me, promised our family that one day through our descendants, all the nations would be blessed. He pointed to the stars to prove this. These kids had every advantage. But they grew up. They had to make choices for themselves. And they had to decide whether or not they would trust God and his plan or if they would only have concern for themselves. You think of all the advantages that we have. Again, if you're holding one of these, this is a quality copy of God's word in our language. We get to even pick between several translations, not just several, a ton of translations. People have literally died to hold something like this in their hand. And there are people around the world that don't have this in their own language. Think of the advantage of the abundance of gospel preaching churches here in America and, and here in Cleveland. I mean, there are so many gospel preaching churches that you can even pick one that fits your preferences. That's unheard of in Christian history. Think of the advantage of having God's people around us, next to you. Do you despise these advantages like Jacob and Esau? And friend, if you are here, you're not trusting in Christ you are despising the advantages that he offers. Forgiveness and freedom and heaven and God himself. You are saying that you would rather have the stuff of this world that's going to go away. You would rather have that than God. But Christian brother and sister, we can also despise our birthright. We can despise the good things we've been given. We let these Bibles collect dust in our homes. We go silent in our prayers, praying to the almighty God in open ear with him. And what's it? we don't prioritize church, being with God's people. We don't treasure Christ. One commentator says this, Esau had no time for spiritual things, but are you any better? So friends, God's grace is abundant. Let's seek God's way and hold on to what he's given us, not despising it, treasuring it. Hold on to Christ, not sin. So even though there's presence of sin, the promise still remains. Chapter 26, bit of an interlude. And if you read it in advance, chapter 26, you may have thought, like, wait, didn't we just read something exactly like this? Yeah, you're not that far off. Like his dad before him, Isaac finds himself in a foreign land 
And he sins by lying about who his wife is. You look at verse 7 of chapter 26. Then Isaac, he's under a threat, but God remains faithful. And if you read it in detail, kind of let your eyes gaze over the text, you'll see that Isaac goes from precarious existence to security and riches. He goes from famine to plenty. He goes from fear of violence to a pact with those who were violent against him. He goes from conflict to peace. So by the end, it's clear that the blessings of Abraham, that that promise to Abraham has now been transferred to his son, Isaac. And that's the blessing that Isaac's sons will fight over. Real thing, a couple brief things about chapter 26. Why did Isaac inherit the blessing? Two important words in verse 5, chapter 26. Because Abraham. He inherited the blessing because Abraham. Because he was connected to Abraham. And this is a picture of how we receive blessings in the new covenant. It's because we are connected to Christ. We are united to Christ by faith. So those blessings of the new covenant, a full forgiveness of our sin, a good standing before God, adoption as God's children, inheritance in heaven, we only get those because Christ has won them for us and we are united to him. So think of it kind of like LeBron and the other calves. On their own, the other calves aren't going to make the finals. But because LeBron is on their team, they get to be in the finals. They'll get the same trophy he gets. They're united to him on the same team. So it's kind of like us. We're united to Christ on our own. We are not getting forgiveness and inheritance. But Christ has won it for us. That's the picture of Isaac being connected to Abraham. But through it all, through all chapter 26, it's again clear that we don't deserve God's favor. We don't deserve God's faithfulness. Isaac, again, he follows in the footsteps of his dad. He's overly self-protective. He does not trust God, and so he risks the safety of his wife. So parents, if you're here, let Isaac's actions remind you that what you do will affect your children, for good or for bad. Kids, obey your parents, but know that your parents will make mistakes. Well, part of the process of repenting from our sins, Isaac's sins, part of the process of turning from your sin is learning from your sin. Isaac has this first problem, and he lies. He's sinful. He's self-protective. Isaac runs into another problem. He's creating all these wells around the land of the promise, and they keep getting taken away from him. And so what does he do in light of this problem? Does he lie again? No, he, he learns from his sin. This time, he trusts God. He trusts God's plan. He humbles himself. He knows that God is, knows what he's doing and that God is good. If you finish the story, Isaac, this lesson doesn't stick with him. So because of the sure forgiveness we have in Christ, we mourn over our sin, but we can always turn back to God and learn from our sin. 
But this lesson doesn't stick with Isaac. You look at verses 34, 35, chapter 26. Even Isaac knowing Esau's sexual sin. Even Isaac knowing God's choice of Jacob. He still tries to scheme to get his own way. So it brings us to the last section, prophecy fulfilled. If you look at chapter 27, page 21, you see jealousy, you see deception, power struggles. You just see flat out sin. All this in Isaac's family comes to a point. The moment of truth, really. And the story goes something like this. Isaac is old. And now he's blind. But he's determined to bless his older son Esau, that, that man's man who Isaac really likes. He's determined to bless Esau despite the promise given to Jacob, despite knowing Esau's past, despite knowing that Esau, he already sold his birthright. Isaac's determined to do this. Rebecca, on the other hand, eavesdrops on Isaac's plan, and she hatches a counter plan that will foil Isaac's intentions. Rebecca's plan was for her favorite, Jacob, to disguise himself as Esau, to wear like these animal skins so that he would seem hairy, and to bring in goats from Jacob's field to make it seem like he just got back from the hunt. And the plan works. Isaac blesses Jacob thinking that he's Esau. And when Esau gets back to his dad, Isaac doesn't take it back. The blessing remains on Jacob. God's prophecy is fulfilled. And Esau then, he's heated. He vows to kill his brother. That's the story. And there's dysfunction all over the place. Secrets and lies and scheming and backstabbing and malice. And at some level, all four characters are guilty of favoring themselves and failing to trust in God and God's ways. Look at Isaac. Blatant disregard for God's will. Do you think he knew Genesis 25, verse 23? Yeah, that God chose to give the blessing to Jacob? Of course he knew that. Do you think he knew Esau's sinfulness? It says he did. It says life was bitter because of his son Esau. He may know these things, but it doesn't keep him from disobeying God. So that's a principle for us. It doesn't matter, or at least knowing that sin is wrong isn't enough. You can know the arguments back and forth. You can know all the information you need. Knowing that sin is wrong isn't enough. It's about what you love and value the most. So in this instance, Isaac knew God's plan. Isaac knew God's ways. Isaac knew what God wanted him to do. But Isaac loved stew. Isaac loved food, what was pleasing to taste more than he loved God's will. It's not a wonder why his son Esau was similar. Isaac would rather eat of Esau's food than obey God's will. And what's more, he thinks his scheme to bless Esau will somehow work. 
he thinks that somehow he can outsmart God in his sin. Friends, are you thinking in that way? Does your sin ever cause you to think that way, that I can outsmart God here? Isaac isn't alone. Look at his wife, Rebecca. She also prioritizes herself. Like her son, Jacob, she has the right priorities, but the wrong method. Do you see she spies on her husband? Throughout this chapter, she doesn't even talk to him. She talks to him only one time, and that's after everything went down. So you have to think that Rebecca here is partially responsible for all this dysfunction in the family. And look at how she labels Isaac and Esau. And she's talking to her son, Jacob. She, she calls Isaac and Esau your father and your brother, not my husband and my son. She could have taken her concern to the Lord, prayed. She could have taken her concern to her husband, talked to Isaac. You know, all that stuff about communication, there's, there's something behind it. But instead, she comes up with this cruel scheme and takes advantage of the fact that her husband's blind. Like, that's pretty low, taking advantage of a blind person. Isaac and Rebecca aren't alone, though. The sin keeps going. When Rebecca approaches Jacob with this plan, Jacob doesn't question whether or not it's wrong. He, he doesn't say, well, hold on. You want me to do that to my blind father? You want me to trick my blind dad? No, he's, his concern is for himself. He's like, well, what if I end up being cursed? Selfish. So kids, honor your parents. Listen to them. And this may never happen to you, but if there is ever a moment when you know your parents are doing something really, really wrong, and if they are hurting you, tell an adult you trust. Parents, do not lead your kids into sin. When you sin, when you sin, especially against your kids, own your sin. Own up to it. Confess it. That's for the good of yourself. That's for the good of your kids. But Jacob continues in his sin. He goes along with his mom's plan. He blasphemes against God, crediting God with all of this plan to his father. And he bold-faced lies to his dad. Look at verse 24. Everything is, is working. He, Jacob passes all the tests that he's really Esau, and Isaac does the last thing. He just asks him straight up, are you really Esau? Jacob says, verse 24, I am. Bold face lie. And we can't forget about Esau. Sin is here too. Esau's manliness may impress his dad, but it's a bad thing to rely on for a relationship with the Lord. So he returns from the hunt. Then he returns too late. And now all of a sudden, Esau cares about the family blessing. He just sold his birthright before, but now he cares about it. So you want to go to Esau and say, you know what? You can't have it both ways. You can't care about the blessing from God and then want to live however you want. Good thing that's not a problem anymore. A lot of people want the benefits of Christ 
while still wanting to live however they want. Friends, that's not serving Christ. That's serving yourself. If Jesus is not your Lord, then he is not your Savior. So yes, we are saved by Christ alone. We are saved by Christ's work. We are saved by believing in that. We're not saved by believing in our own works. But that belief in Christ's work is going to show itself in how we live, in the things we prioritize. So we should learn from Esau. He weeps over missing out on the blessing, but they're not tears of humility. They're tears of selfishness. Verse 36, you look at that. He loses the blessing, and what does he do? He looks at his brother. He took away my birthright. He loses the blessing, and it doesn't cause him to look at himself. It causes him to point the finger at someone else. So friends, in order for us to trust in God's way, in order for us to follow Jesus as our Lord, at some point, we got to stop pointing the finger at other people, even though people legitimately sin against us. At some point, you got to start pointing the finger back at yourself, acknowledging your own sin. So in the end, God's way wins out. Despite all the human sin, despite all the things that try to prevail against it, the prophecy is fulfilled. Jacob got the blessing. But make no mistake, just because Jacob got the blessing and the prophecy is fulfilled, God doesn't approve of Jacob's sin. We'll see next week how Jacob had to deal with the consequences of his sin. But for now, God's ways are always better. Reminds me of the Apostle Paul. If you don't know about Paul, he wasn't always this church-going fellow. Well, in fact, that's not quite accurate. He wasn't always a Christian. In fact, Paul, by his own description, was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church. Basically, Paul was a terrorist. That's until Jesus came to him. And one of the things Jesus asked him was this strange thing. Why are you kicking against the goads? That kind of falls on deaf, deaf ears for us. But basically, Jesus is asking him, you know what you're doing won't work, right? Selfish living with no regard for God, it won't work. We've seen the beginning of the story, friends. Genesis 1. That we're not created to live by our own rules we're created to live according to God's rules, God's way. That's where life is. But man, is that hard to see. Because of sin, it takes humility to admit not our will, but God's will be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, open our hearts and our minds and our ears that we may receive it that it may take root, that we would acknowledge you over us, that you would root out selfishness from us, and that you would help us to trust you, your goodness, and your ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.